escalating energy efficiency. There is no quick fix. Interview with Rod Jansen, episode 60. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. On this episode, we speak with Rod Jansen, the man behind the Energy in Demand weekly newsletter and website. There's a link in the show notes. Definitely sign up. He is also the president of Energy Efficiency in Industrial Process. But more aptly, Rod is a true expert in energy efficiency. As you'll hear in this episode, Rod's pool of knowledge goes back to the aftermath of the 1970s oil crisis. He shares his experience from then and then the renewed focus on energy efficiency to survive this energy crisis. But as we learn from this conversation, good energy efficiency takes years to be built and can't be done just by hooking up a heat pump. However, as we discuss, Europe does have a good foundation for greater efforts into energy efficiency if member states actually decide to get serious about energy efficiency. Rod shares his experience consulting SMEs in Turkey and implementing and complying with EU regulations on energy efficiency. It sounds boring, but trust me, it's really interesting when Rod explains it. So, uh, yeah, the main point is that there are EU directives and rules, and actually they are just good business and good to improve energy efficiency. You can also learn why Rod loves heat pumps. I'll give you a hint. His living room in Canada holds 100 people, where it gets down to minus 25. The second half of the interview, we go into detail about the interplay between energy efficiency and government policies. This includes how Germany became too dependent on Russia, of course, and also how companies that use gas may be overlooking the security benefits of energy efficiency. Zrad emphasizes energy efficiency is the first fuel That is, you have to look at the demand side before you expand and change the supply side of the energy system. Why build bigger power plants when investing in reducing energy demand is more cost-effective and secure. Overall, we have a lively and, I have to say, entertaining discussion on a better design to energy security, which is investing into reducing the demand for energy. Rod also appeared on a previous episode of this podcast, so there's a link in the show notes if you really like our interview. Or you can even go to the website, the My Energy 2050 podcast website, and do a search there. Uh, Just a word of caution, I have a bit of a problem with the website, so I'll be fixing that over the next few weeks. And finally, I want to thank you for listening and sharing the My Energy 2050 podcast. I want to recognize our many listeners as we put out more and more content. The audience and the downloads keep going even higher. Simply profound, I think, to see the impact that the podcast is starting to have. Yeah, as I mentioned, there's a bit of a problem with the website, so bear with me while I sort it out over the next few weeks. I don't make any money from the podcast, so things are bare bones around here, but I like to keep it functional, and I like to keep it highly professional, and hopefully the website Uh, looks that way when it's in its good days. So the intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. Rod Jansen, welcome again to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be back. 
Thanks. And we're going to keep this formal and informal. It feeds into this research that I'm doing on, I would say, energy efficiency, demand side management, and the refocus and the contribution that it can make because of the war, Russia's war in Ukraine. And I just have general questions. And as we discussed before I pressed record, it's kind of just thinking through these ideas and getting the feedback in from other people, what, what this all means. Right. And um, maybe before we begin, I actually, since I introduced you in an earlier episode, I actually let you just introduce yourself before we begin. <laughs> okay, when Amazing. are we beginning? We're beginning now. Oh, we're, we're beginning, beginning now. now. So I, I let you like talk about your background or okay. your current position. Thank you very much. My name is Rod Jansen. I'm in here in Paris. I've, I'm an energy consultant. I've been working in the energy efficiency and renewable sustainable energy field for a long time. I started off in the Canadian government and I moved to Paris to the International Energy Agency where I had the first global project on evaluating energy efficiency. We, people were skeptical whether they would be effective at all. And so we, we really proved as much as you can prove that uh, they were. Uh, I stayed on in, in Europe uh, to become a, a consultant uh, I worked a lot in, after the, the Soviet wall came down, I worked a lot in Eastern Europe, primarily in Romania and uh, Hungary to quite a bit of an extent. And um, then in the 1990s, I did a lot of work for the European Commission itself and the DG, what's now DG Energy, because one of the crazy things is they were so understaffed and I had a big advantage because while I was a, a European resident and I could technically work for them, what I what I brought to them was an experience of having experience with a lot of countries, you know, fr from the IEA. And so what I what I didn't bring was sort of I wasn't just going to bring the Danish position or the Dutch position or the Italian position. What I was trying to do is try and find the best position for them. And so my relationship with them was probably for close to 10 years. I was going there quite regularly and helping them quite a bit. I did a few evaluations in that. And then uh, it just branched out more and more. In, in the 2000s, there was a period where I did a lot of work on, on mitigation and adaptation for climate change, projects that were covered Asia and Latin America and, uh, and Africa. And then what happened is probably 2009, the European Commission was really changing its whole approach to energy efficiency. They were revising the, the buildings directive. They were creating a new energy efficiency directive and that. And I was hired by what's an NGO called the European Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. And I was actually based in, in, in Brussels. I was working there basically half time. And, uh, and so got very involved in EU policies related to energy and, and, and renewables to a certain extent. And that's basically continued. I'm on the board of the ECEEE and I'm with a group called Energy Efficiency and Industrial Processes based in Brussels. And we, it says industrial processes, but we work on the energy transition. It, 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 we work a lot with cities and uh, we'll work with other areas as well. So, but in, in that, we're, we're doing quite a few projects uh, related to energy efficiency, 
mainly in industry, but as I said, in other areas. And then up until recently, I was working a lot in Turkey. And part of that work in Turkey was actually quite interesting because what we were doing was helping them to eventually become a member of the European Union, if it ever happened, but also what to help them uh, to actually help them implement the directives because the energy efficiency directives, whether they ever join or not, make sense, whether it's on the buildings directive or the energy efficiency directive related to industry or whatever. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, these are just good policies. This is a good legal f foundation to help them on. So I did quite a bit of work there. And then most recently I was working, just before the pandemic, I was working in Romania, helping them with them meeting some of their obligations as members of the EU. So it's been quite, it's been a, all of the pieces fit together. And, uh, and I, the one thing I didn't mention is I have my own blog called Energy in Demand, which I've had now for just over 10 years. And um, it's, it's quite successful. I mean, I even had people last week from Australia saying, can you promote our National Energy Efficiency Conference that's coming up in May? You know, so uh, it's, it's quite useful and, uh, and, and quite fun. And just uh, lets everybody know that uh, I'm still in business doing this and that there's a, there's a really a big need for us to be sharing a lot of this information. It's, it's focusing on energy and demand, but we, it, it looks at climate. It looks at a lot of issues that are, are related to moving us towards net zero and you know, a, a carbon neutral energy transition. So anyway, and that comes out. Mm -hmm. You you have a weekly newsletter, right? Yes, I have a, I have a newsletter that comes out on a Sunday morning, and people thought this is absolutely crazy doing it on a Sunday morning. I do it before I go for a run, so I sent I send it out. I mean, I actually okay. put it all together on usually on a Friday night or Saturday, and then I I send it out on a Sunday. But it's actually turned out to be quite successful because for a lot of people they've they've got a little downtime to be able to read some of these things a little bit more casually. Uh, on yes. a, on a Sunday, so it it it, it seems to be, and if you get something on your desk on a Monday morning, you're Monday, you're just overwhelmed by things, you know. So so it it, it actually has worked out quite well. Okay, so weekend weekend publishing is the tip. I wanted to. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I know I prepared some questions for us, but I wanted to follow up on something because I mean, why we're talking is we often talk about, yeah, for example, gas supply, gas demand is all about production of energy. But here we're talking about the other side about energy efficiency and reducing demand for energy, uh, which actually makes a bigger contribution uh, overall for the energy system. But but you mentioned Turkey and your, your work in Turkey and that just even applying these standards or directives that the EU has developed in Turkey makes a difference in Turkey. Could you could you expand on that? Like well, why? why? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, it, in Turkey, the thing is that it's one of the top 10 industrial countries. We don't, we don't even think of it that way. I remember visiting a factory in Ankara where one factory produced a quarter of the world's dishwashers. You know, I mean, these the, the the scale is unbelievable. And so what was what was important? I mean, it doesn't it's not energy rich. It doesn't have a lot of it has to import oil. It has to import gas. Uh, 
it has a little bit of hydro. It has, I mean, every country has some resources, but the thing was that it, it has to be competitive. And so it's really important for it to be trying to be developing best practice because it's competing against Chinese companies or Malaysian companies or American companies or Dutch companies. So it has to be seen as a global player. And so uh, it's, it's, it's quite important for them. I mean, are they doing the best thing all the time? No. Is any country? No, not all the time. But where they really do need help probably is in with the small and medium-sized enterprises. And uh, the government loves working with the really large energy-intensive industries. I mean, and, and that's not just Turkey. I mean, like here I'm in, in France, everywhere. They're, they're almost all like that. But the thing is that a, most, a lot of their exports are from SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises. And they've actually got one organization, COSGEP, I think is, or something, I forget now, that just deals with SMEs and, and trying to help them. But one of the problems was uh, several years ago now, the World Bank set up a $100 million uh, fund for energy efficiency in SMEs. And for a long time, none of that was touched because these these small companies didn't know how to go to a bank and actually produce, develop a business case for it. This is where I was telling a lot of energy service companies or engineering companies, this this is this is easy business for you. Go work with them. You know, be that intermediary to help them walk them to the bank. And we're seeing the same problem. All, I mean, even in in Europe, we see the same problem here. And uh, because it's it's hard for these banks to be, uh, they don't have enough capacity to understand energy efficiency. That's a, that's another program here in Europe we may want to talk about at some point. Yeah. Well, but, uh, mm-hmm. so it's 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 so this, this, in Turkey they're they're quite open to this. In fact, on on Thursday I'm actually going to be speaking at a at a conference at a university on energy management. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Uh-huh. Excellent. And do I have the terms right? What's the difference between energy efficiency and demand side management? Some people, demand side management, I mean, energy efficiency is just one part of a demand side management. I mean, you can, uh-huh. you, can, you can be affecting your demand by using, deploying renewables. But, but, but basically what we're trying to do is reduce our, our, our use of commercial uh, fuels is effectively what it is. And actually starting, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, it's, it's starting looking at this problem from a demand side as opposed to the supply. And government after government, company after company, their default position is to sort of see what's the supply solution. I mean, even as the current problem we have with natural gas, uh in, in a crisis, yes, it, it can make sense to divert an LNG ship to Germany or to somewhere else. But at, in the long term, we've got to be reducing our demand. In, in buildings, for example, our consumption is probably double what it needs to be per square meter. So wow. before you put in a heat pump, doesn't it make sense to get that envelope, that building in shape so that you, you understand, you know, so you size your technology appropriately. And this is, this is what we're talking about, you know? And, and, uh-huh. and so this happens, this happens in factories, this happens everywhere to, to sort of get a better sense of your demand 
so that you know how to properly size or to even determine what's the right technology for what you need. And I was just reading today that in the United Kingdom, for example, the government wants to promote subsidizing heat pumps, for example, uh, which is a good thing to do, except that they were saying only one out of five houses in the UK is ready for a heat pump. I mean, you've got to be doing something with the insulation or with the windows or other things first to properly size it. And and then then it makes perfect sense. But you, uh-huh. I, I can't blame the, the salesman who sells heat pumps. That person wants to sell heat pumps. You know, so that's your job. So yeah. what, we, what we need is a much more integrated approach to all this, and it's it's not easy in, in market economies because who knocks on the door first? You know, so that's that that's the problem. And also, you from the consumer's point of view, they do get bombarded more by renewables, or putting solar panels on your roof, or 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 something like that, or or a heat pump, as opposed to an insulation supply person knocking on their door which doesn't really happen very much yeah so i mean because yeah i mean one of the reasons we're talking anyways it's just great to catch up with you but one of the reasons we're talking is because the high gas prices caused on by russia reducing and then well we'll just say reducing supplies to europe and then also then europe now reacting and trying to reduce demand demand for or their demand for Russian gas and but still trying to find other sources for gas. But what you're saying though is that and it's been proposed, yeah, we should use heat pumps for for the heating then. But actually what you're suggesting is actually we need to just do a fuller assessment of the buildings. We like have to do windows. A full, yes, mm-hmm. we have to do a fuller assessment. We do have to decarbonize our heating. So, I mean, and, and that can be done through district heating, although not every community that makes sense. And, and sometimes it had to have been done before or maybe for a new, a new housing development that may make sense. But we've got to decarbonize our heating. And some are talking about hydrogen. Hydrogen may have a role to play, but it, it seems like if you look at the examples in Sweden you, you'll, or Northern Europe, you'll see that the heat pump makes sense. There's a lot of misunderstanding about heat pumps, and partially, I think the industry is at partially at fault. I don't think they're really good entrepreneurs. But I mean, I have we have a house in Canada. Uh, it's in fact it's Canada's largest uh, log house from 1819, and the, really? li- the living room can hold a hundred people. Wow. So. But we have two heat pumps, two Mitsubishi heat pumps in there that it was somebody from the Swedish Energy Agency who recommended it. And th- they work at minus 25, minus 30 degrees. So there's a lot of myths about can they be effective, can they not be effective. But the point is, again, but even just saying, talking about heat pumps, we're talking about a supply side knee-jerk. We have to actually take a much more holistic approach. You will have seen... It's actually quite good we're talking today because only yesterday, and I know this will be broadcast later, but I mean, on on, on the, uh, the 4th of April, the IPCC came out with its new report on, on mitigation. And so that mm-hmm. the, its third report. And you'll see there's quite a strong section about buildings and, and what can and should be done. But the thing is, it can be done. And that's the, that's the important thing. Getting back, you mentioned Russia, you mentioned the crisis. 
When I worked at the International Energy Agency, the one thing energy efficiency is not good for is a crisis. And so you, you can have demand restraint uh, initiatives. You, you can tell people not to drive a car. You can ban them from driving a car. You can make them turn down their, their thermostat. How you can enforce that is another thing. But there's a number of things you can do to re- reduce consumption. Uh, you, but you cannot insulate a million homes by in 10 days. So in terms of the in, in International Energy Agency, so energy efficiency was put in the Office of Long-Term Cooperation. It was seen as a long-term policy. Now, one of the problems we've got in Europe is that we've had these policies a long time. There's been a real lack of any motivation to do something seriously about it. And now we're caught in it. So where we should have been doing renovating houses, just to, we're just talking about buildings for right now, 10 years ago, and really doing them seriously, we haven't been. And even last year, the commission came out with what's called the renovation wave. Was it last year? Maybe a year and a half ago now. I guess it's close to two years. Where we're supposed to be renovating 35 million buildings by 2030. That means 3.5 million buildings a year. Are we? We're nowhere close to that. And also the, those buildings are supposed to be done at a at a very ambitious level. Right now, the latest data we have from the commission is that the average renovation has about a nine to maybe 15% improvement. It's a joke. That's nothing. Okay. That's nothing. We need, but that's, that's what we're, that's what we're doing today. And so we're supposed to be getting that up to 60 to 80%. So what's happened is we've got a very nice initiative called the renovation wave, but we haven't put the pieces together. And, and, and we haven't even talked with industry, whether there is enough insulation, whether there is enough cement, whether there is enough, you know, whatever technologies are going to be applied to know whether they can do so, 3.5 million a year and what sort of roadmap they've done. Ireland about a month ago came out with a very good uh, plan. And I, I think they said that they're going to do half a million buildings by 2030. And the way they've done it, I think they actually can do it. So there's some countries who are taking it more seriously. But I mean, Germany has to be taking it much, much, much more seriously. They may be able to come over this crisis. I mean, but you're, you can't do this quickly. Now, the Germans, for example, have had this energy vendor, you know, this energy transition since Merkel days, so we're probably talking five years that they've yeah. had it. And they've done quite a bit on the renewable side, but they haven't done enough on the, the energy f- demand side of it. And, and so I think this is where they're going to be, where they've fallen short. So they, is, is it up to the, I want to maybe ask a, who is responsible in the sense of who is responsible? Is it the European Commission that needs to drive forward this policy as the EU itself? Or because when it comes to implementation, of course, we have the national level and national governments that should set aside the money to 
help, but also we can talk about local authorities or however, whatever the local. Yeah, I mean, how does what happen? What happens basically is that you've got these are framework directives. What and and for example, in the buildings directive, there's a requirement to produce a long-term renovation plan strategy. That's what I was helping Romania with a couple of years ago. But each country will do it differently. I mean, the housing stock is different. I mean, the the and the the quality of the buildings are different. So you you so it is given left up to but even in terms of the long term renovation strategy they may all be in now but they were supposed to be in to the commission by march 2020 a lot a lot of them or probably only half of them were in by then maybe not even half and so i think the commission has been a little bit too passive uh, I, I, I'm, and, and, and not even a, in a legal sense. Well, there is a legal sense. I mean, they have to have that renovation strategy in. But I mean, even in terms of evaluating the quality of the work and whatever, there, there's some overlying things that happen. W- what they've created is what's called concerted action. And you've got experts from each member state come together and, and work to, to try and solve their problems. So, so there's, a, there's a team, actually, it's based out of the Danish Energy Agency that, that runs Concerted Action for the Buildings Directive. And so they bring together and they work on, on different topics, whether it's nearly zero energy buildings or financing or standards development or whatever. So they've got different working groups of, of some of the experts from these member states to try. And, and if, if one country has a problem, they can go to this group and say, what should I do? You know, I need some help. And and so there's so there's there are three concerted actions. There's one for the buildings directive. There's one for the energy efficiency directive, which includes industry and buildings and energy company obligations and one thing or another. And there's a third one for renewable energy directive, and that's important because the renewable energy directive also includes talking about heating as well. So so and and those three groups work together so there's a lot of good things that are happening it's just not happen there's been no major driver in some ways we this crisis hopefully is is kicking everybody and sort of making them realize they've got to take this more seriously and and, and so uh i mean nobody wants a crisis like we're having right now anybody yeah. but um hopefully it will take stock there were just a couple days ago no was it yesterday or was it friday no i think it was friday they actually had a meeting on the buildings directive in the european parliament it was the first time that they've actually had a live meeting you know uh, with people from stakeholders outside to work together so hopefully we've turned a corner uh to to create a bit more urgency into this uh and you know, I, I, I know people are struggling with energy prices. And, and I mean, even in the United Kingdom right now, they're sort of saying, oh, should we, should the, the, the government in power, the conservatives right now, so there's a big group of them inside there saying, well, maybe we should just stop this net zero strategy and just worry about prices, okay? And just worry about supply. Let's, let's increase our supply from the, from the North Sea to be energy independent. And 
that's not it, it that's that's a very short-term approach to it and especially when you read a report that just came out yesterday from the ipcc plus the ipcc report that came out last july i believe on adaptation we cannot give up that that fight on on the climate we simply can't but but is it i mean maybe we could go on energy uh, independence and doesn't the current crisis show us that countries and I'm baiting you on this. Doesn't the current crisis show that countries should be energy independent, that that they shouldn't rely on outside suppliers? No, in fact, I I think it's the opposite. I think you shouldn't be dependent on single suppliers. Germany is too dependent on Russia. And I remember back in the 1980s, there was a big complaint about Austria for the same thing, that it was too dependent on East Europeans, I mean, Soviet uh, natural gas. And the thing is, I mean, I, just look at a country like Japan. It's an incredibly successful country, but it, it has multiple suppliers. I mean, it doesn't have anything. So it has multiple suppliers and they would never say that they're, they're energy insecure, but they've got multiple sources. And this is, this is, and this is the case basically for Europe because in Europe, Where's, where's our natural gas right now? It's in Norway, has some. Uh, the Netherlands is pretty well gone. There's not much. So we've, we've got natural gas in Algeria. There's a little tiny bit left in Romania, not much. Uh, so we're going to have to, we, we, we simply have no choice but to be dependent on imports. And and what maybe maybe I take you back to the industry, but we we separate. So, essentially, Europe is reliant on too much gas. Particularly, I mean, now now we just need to get away from Russian gas. So the demand for gas is too high, reflecting in the high price. So there has to be a separation and changes made. Is that in industry or is that for households? Oh, that's for that, that's for everything. But it's I mean. I'm working. I'm working on three projects with industry, uh, where we're for two of them. I mean, this is for l- large energy-intensive industries: cement, aluminum, ceramics, that are are changing the feedstock from fossil fuels to biomass, and the biomass will be different. I mean, we, we the projects are in Spain, Italy, uh, Romania, Turkey, and obviously the. The resource will be different, and it's, it, and it, and so we're 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 experimenting with different things. How we're trying to have a common methodology, but we're trying to and also increase use of digitalization so that the process becomes more efficient as we're changing the feedstock. But these companies know they've got to get off of natural gas or oil. They know it. They there's simply no choice, and they're all. Um, on the, I think it was early February, I, I moderated a webinar on for one of these projects, and we brought in the rapporteur from the industry committee of the European Parliament, a guy named Tom Berenson from the Netherlands, who was he's the rapporteur for the industry strategy, which came out by the Commission last year and the year before, and we had representatives from four different industries: glass, aluminum. Uh, ceramics and non-ferrous metals and it's incredible what those association what those 
industries are doing to get off of, of fossil fuels. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but they do have roadmaps for 2030 and 24. I mean, they actually, they're really serious about it. And the woman from the glass industry says, well, she was actually from the German association. The others were European wide, but she says, you know, even for glass, it's, it's quite complicated because we've, We've got six or seven different types of glass, even even the glass that makes the vials for the for the COVID vaccine. You know, I mean, uh, and the, all the processes are totally different. But these industries are working together to try and figure out how to how to decarbonize, and so they they realize that decarbonization is decarbonization. Uh, there's no single roadmap for it at all, but I mean, they're all incredibly serious, and so they're they're working very hard. One of the things that's interesting is that the commission has been the the projects that were funded by the commission, and what their look the commission is doing is, which is I think is quite fascinating, is that we're already seeing, assuming we solve the problem. How would we replicate it? How do we sell those technologies throughout Europe and globally? And so we're we're working on that part already, a much more entrepreneurial approach than they did take five years ago or whatever. So this is this is this is a fascinating approach. And also in the ceramic industry, the one company that we have as a demonstration in Spain, I mean, they they own factories in Argentina. And, and around the world. So once once we've solved it here, that that technology or that that process will be used elsewhere. And 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 even Tom Berenson, the member of the European Parliament, he he really wants Europe to be seen as a leader in these these clean energy technologies that we can be marketing to Australia, to Canada, to US, whatever. And so so that actually our green approach can actually be seen to be a, a, a real economic driver, you know? Now, and I, mean, I, I say the European Union, but I, I, we should be talking about Europe. And I, I, I hopefully Britain will be doing the same thing. Uh, and I, they've got some wonderful industries. And I think, I think we will be seeing some of that. They've got some top-notch universities working with them, and so I think we we will see that happen. So, so Europe is trying to use their. It's basically, and we could even look at Turkey, right? Your example of Turkey, as the resource uh, deficiency that they have for energy, as a competitive advantage by investing heavily into technology and technological solutions to decarbonize their economy and then export that technology due to ex- technology Absolutely. transfers. But, you know, the thing is, mm-hmm. when I first moved to Europe in the 80s, I was struck how much smaller cars were, how much smaller houses were, it, 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 and how much more expensive a liter of uh, fuel is than in North America. And, I mean... Uh, you, Growing up in Canada and the U.S., the houses kept getting bigger and bigger, <laughs> the cars getting bigger and bigger. But, I mean, it was they were resource-rich. Europe has never been resource-rich in that sense and so has had to take a much different approach. And you, you, can, you can see it in the, in the lifestyles. 
I mean, that's that's somewhat changing. There's there's more SUVs on the road now than there should be, but that's that's a different issue. Yeah. And, uh, no, but I mean, yeah, we know just by living here. Actually, a lot of my listeners are in the United States, so maybe this would be good to reflect on on the difference because here public transportation is just so much easier and better. I mean, we could talk about the built environment and how people move around, how it's accessible, the public transportation, and it's affordable. We're in the United States. People are locked into cars because of the deficiency in public transportation. Well, exactly, yeah. and and but there wasn't always a deficiency. I mean, it, the the car industry really ended up getting rid of a lot of trams in the center of cities and and public transport that uh, almost all of the cities had. But I mean, you, you live in Budapest. Look at the tram system there. You know, uh, yeah, it's great. You know, I mean, the, the 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 public transport in 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 Budapest is is fantastic. I and I first went there to a UN conference in 1985 and was just struck. I mean, this is under the old the old planned economy days and and how impressive. Oh, we 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 still we still have planned economy in Hungary now in communism. So. Well, <laughs> that, that's a fact. So, okay. No, but I mean, yeah. I, I mean, when I worked at the IEA, I mean, some of the seniors people were complaining that because I was the desk officer also for Denmark, and they said that Denmark was too much of a planned economy. You know, it had to be much more open. You know, but but that, but but Rod, sorry, I'm going to interrupt right there because this is like what we're looking at now, isn't it? Because we've relied on competition, neoliberal competition, and a lot of innovation from industry to create this energy transition. But now we could say, at least in the West, we're in this energy crisis, and actually globally. And doesn't it rely on much more of an interventionist government to get involved? Uh, personally speaking, yes, that's how I feel. And 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 you'll see that I mean, even France is much more interventionist than the UK or Germany. And you'll see a much more holistic role played here in France. And I, I, I really think you cannot just leave it to market forces. And for example, in Germany, just reading on, in the Financial Times today, that uh, gas, uh, Gazprom Germany owns a lot of the, the uh, natural gas storage, and all that gas storage is empty. Now, but this is owned by Gazprom. And so, so the, the German government is taking it over, okay? But I mean, uh-huh. it's just it, it. They've they've slipped. They've just walked into this problem. Okay, <laughs> it's just so stupid. Wow. Right. Yeah. And and the thing was that on the one hand we were seeing Russia as sort of a a good car, you know partner, and in some ways we saw it as a real as an end. So we've never we've never been quite clear in what relationship we want with it. And we should have seen after Crimea and after the East European, uh, Ukrainian problem in 2014, uh, where things were heading. And, and we didn't enough. Yeah. Okay. We didn't enough. I was looking to, I was, I was trying to think if the IEA was giving the right signals or not. And so I went, they, they did a, the in-depth review of EU policies in 2020, and I was just looking at it yesterday. There is an incredible amount on energy security. Every page. I mean, I just did a, a word search on security, wow. 
And it Uh was impressive. The one thing that wasn't impressive is that nobody knew about that report. It's like the IEA did it. They put out one press release and then it it, it just was, well, there's other things to deal with. Okay. But the IEA has always been about energy security. Okay. I know they've, they've got a focus on climate change right now as they should, but the primary focus is on energy security. That's why it was created by Kissinger and others in the seventies. And the messages were there, but they weren't listened to, you know, and, and I don't know, I don't know who to blame, but it was a, it was a shock yesterday to read the, look at the report. The, the I, if they did the review of the Czech Republic a couple of years ago as well. I think it was 2019. And they actually did, in that section on energy security, make a link with energy efficiency. So I was really pleased to see that. Did the Czechs do that? I mean, in the early 2000s, I was part of the group of the European Energy Charter that actually did in-depth review of the Czechs' energy efficiency policies, not energy policies, energy efficiency policies, and the Czechs in those days couldn't care less about energy efficiency. Has it improved? I don't know. You know? There's yeah. some very good people working on energy efficiency, but are they having enough influence? I don't know. But, but why? Because for us, <laughs> this connection between energy efficiency and energy security is completely obvious. If you if you're much more efficient and whatever, and you're not using as much energy, you have greater energy security, greater resiliency in your in your housing or for society, for industry, and everything. But why do you think that doesn't have residence residence with others? Well, I think what, one what? of the problems is the energy efficiency community of which I'm part of. I think we've just been talking to each other too much. I, I think we've just not been out into the community. We've been t- we've been too self satisfied, and we've been you know we've we, some of us we've had nice jobs and think okay I'm un- I'm self employed, but I mean the thing is, but I think I think we've I think we've just got too complacent in this, and and so I I don't think there wasn't even a big enough sense of urgency. Now I forget now how many years ago now when fracking was really a big deal in the States and they were sending gas over here at those industry in in the U S had much lower prices of gas. So they're, they would be much more competitive. And the, the ECEEE, we put out a paper on this whole thing, but again, that whole competitiveness wasn't the Europeans just, uh, in in some ways, because Europe is, is, we have such a big internal market they've they got we've we've just become too complacent everywhere and this is this is a problem so this is a really good wake up call mm-hmm. so we, so we went through a, a period where we could look at this neoliberal competitiveness competitive markets with lots of suppliers as as a period of oversupply and an abundance in a sense of cheap gas because it was cheap and so people were not focused on saving but now we've transitioned into this other period again, and maybe we can pa- draw parallels or not parallels with the 1970s yeah. and the oil crisis. But it's interesting that you bring up the IEA and their focus on energy security, because that was the time when energy security was really prominent. And now it's it's a time of scarcity, so energy efficiency could have a new, I don't know, more prominent role in the energy yeah, system. Yeah, I mean, I think even uh, the IEA downplayed its security role. And, and and 
for the last 10 years have really, really, really come into climate change as a big thing. But and while not giving enough focus and, and hidden, as I said, that report from the IEA two years ago about EU policies, it, it, it was there, but it was never stressed very much. You know? And so I, I, I think I think uh, Fatih Birol has to be hammering more and more and, and the other seniors at the IEA on the security thing. And it, uh, OK, they just had their ministerial last week and obviously... But here, they're they're trying to get the IEA. They're trying to do some reform, internal reform to make the IEA relevant for the twenty first century. But the, it, to be relevant, it has to be much more focused on energy security, and not and, and and they've they talk about energy efficiency being the first fuel, and it, it's it's a mindset. It's actually. What it's saying is you're looking at the demand side first to see what you can do. This goes back full circle of what we've been talking about. So it's it's not that you're necessarily energy efficiency will have to be an integrated element into um, looking at the, a factory, looking at a house, looking at a community. And we have to be looking at it community wide. We have to be looking at it regional wide. We can't just individual buildings, even for Nearly zero energy buildings, which is part of the buildings directive. All houses now have to be nearly zero energy, all new buildings. But we, you're just not going to put a wind turbine on your roof or, or solar. What you have to look at is, is in a much more regional sense. And so, and even now in industry, what we would, this something called industrial symbiosis, and it's basically circular economy, basically. Reuse, taking some waste from one and, and using it again. But you can do it within a factory or you can do it within a community or you can do it within a county or a region. So, and these are some of the things that they're looking into right now, uh, how, how to do this. And, and, and we're working with the financial community to see how, how, do, how do we even make this as a business case? You know, when it's multiple companies, some being large, some being SME, some, you know, all. So this is, this is new territory you were trying to, we're trying to go into. And I'm, I mentioned the financing earlier. I'm, I'm on the, the group organizing what's called energy efficiency financial institutions group. And this is co-convened by DG energy of the European commission and United Nations Environment Program Finance Initiative, and it's basically, I mean, I, I was the I was the the working group leader for the working group on industry, and I'm a co-leader on what's trying to accelerate demand right now. But we were basically trying to make sure we can get more money from the private sector into financing all of this. And one of the things we've had to do is is capacity building for banks. When you when you look at a renewable project, say a, a wind wind farm you can see a boundary around it if it makes sense but when when you're isolating some technologies inside a factory it's hard for a bank to get a, its head around that to see where what what are they actually financing will and it, will it be an equity position is it just a loan i mean like all of these are make make it difficult and so we've been working with the banking industry quite a bit uh to to get them to just be more comfortable financing energy efficiency and also to helping, as I mentioned earlier with the SMEs in Turkey, but it's also here uh, working with them. 
Now, in, in terms of the impact of energy prices, we're seeing some really major problems in certain mm. industries, and one of them being ceramics. And, and, and in Portugal, they've actually even closed some factories because it, the prices are just too high. These are very in, energy-intensive industries, and they, uh, they're struggling, and especially the small SMEs, and, and a lot of them have just had to close. And wow. te- temporarily, but hopefully, but yeah, it's yeah. just uh, it's it it just makes it incredibly difficult. So we are it, seeing it really... some some dislocations in 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 this area. I think the logistics area is, is is suffering as well. I mean, the truckers must be having a very very big problem this way. It just shows the co- the true cost of a de- dependency on fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, not no no not only you know the the impact fossil fuel ha- has on climate change causing it, but also the economic costs when the price rises and giving even more impetus to the decarbonization of the economy. Yeah, I mean, you, talk about the perfect storm because we've had COVID, you know, which has affected things and. And so a lot of our economy just shut down, you know. And here, as we're trying to get out of it, and then all of a sudden we're we're just hit with this massive energy price increase. Now in France, they've they've sheltered it. They've, they've lowered the price per liter by a certain number of centimes, you know, to help the uh, the more vulnerable, uh, mm-hmm. whether vulnerable industries or vulnerable people in, in general. Uh, but it's it's it, it it it's it's very difficult right now, and uh, wow. so I I so there's no I mean in in a crisis there's no simple solution. This is the whole problem, and so I mean even the, as I said the IEA ministerial last week or the the commission is meeting all the time. I mean no one has got a a, a really good good solution. I mean Fatih Birol tells people to turn down their their thermometer in their house by one degree. Yeah. And will that be yeah. enough? Probably not. But no, there's there's no. going to be other other steps we're going to have to take. Um, but we haven't we haven't done it yet. This the building I'm in right now. I moved in here. The second oil crisis had just ended. Everybody in this building was a renter at that time. Now everybody's an owner, but that's a different thing. And actually, it was in our lease that the temperature could not be above 18 degrees. Okay. Really? Yeah, and we had one boiler for the whole building, so they could control the whole building. Oh. So, but this, these were still, uh, these were still uh, initiatives from the government to overcome the oil crisis. Wow. Yeah, France was heavily dependent on oil. I didn't realize for heating as well. Well, and that's why in the seventies they they had a major shift to, to nuclear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where yeah. a country like. Denmark switched, they were complete, all their electricity was oil, then they switched to natural gas, or no, it was oil to coal, and then to natural gas, but at the same time, they had their heat plan, and so uh, even even they had a referendum inside cities like uh, Copenhagen to decide which neighborhoods would be district heating and which would be individual heating, you know, so, but once a a section of the city decided on one, everybody, it was all or nothing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is what my boss at the IEA was, was upset about their, their planned economy, you know? So, 
Well, over the long term, right? Uh, district heating definitely comes out better than individual heating, even for the individual homeowners. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, okay, Rod, for, for the sake of time, uh, I just want to maybe, I want to finalize a few things. You did mention the energy and demand newsletter, uh, but I also wanted to expand on just the ECEEE and what it does. Okay. Well, let's start with ECEEE. It's the European Council for Energy Efficient Economy. It's been going since the mid-90s, and it, it tried to model itself after the American Council for Energy Efficient Economy in one way, but not another. What it did was have a summer study every two years of peer-reviewed papers. And so the peer-reviewed papers are actually accepted as academic quality. So if you have to get so many peer-reviewed, you know, academic papers a year, having a paper at our summer study counted, okay? So we have a lot of academics at our thing. But the purpose of it is to actually build up the, our knowledge base to really uh, to to explore new areas, whether the multiple benefits, whether it's on financing, whether it's it's integrating with renewables or whatever. So we have we have a summer study every two years. We had one last year, which was a, a virtual. So actually, we're going to hold one a, a second year in a row. Uh, it. So this knowledge sharing, and, and then we we normally organize some events in Brussels. We work, we you know we we offer help to the to the parliament or whatever. It's it's a very bare bones organization. It doesn't have a lot of money. We we were actually created by some of the energy agencies, the national energy agencies in Denmark, Sweden, uh, France. Uh, Britain, and it's uh, it, it really tries to help in the energy transition. We 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 work on certain topics like sufficiency, and we've we've really brought that out and the importance of sufficiency. And this this goes back comparing America to to Europe in terms of size of houses or cars or whatever. Uh, we try to make. We try to bring out a, a whole new generation of of experts, and so a lot of our p- papers are done by people who are working on their PhD or, you know, quite young researchers. Uh, we have we do a lot on evaluation to try and increase the the methodologies and better understanding of it. We have in in our summer studies we actually get a lot of people from America and China and globally coming to it. To, to share, so it it's it's got a it's got a good reputation. It could have a better reputation if we had more money. And we we're, we're, we're in some ways we're amateurs. That should be AC in the U.S. does a mu- much better job. But then it's not it's not a member based organization. It's it, it's got a staff of about fifty, and they just get uh, donations. From organize and, and Americans are great at giving donations, yeah. In 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 Washington, and this is one this is one of the problems of comparing Brussels to Washington, because even even the industry associations, whether it's for glass or for insulation, they're very underfunded compared to the American ones. You know, everything in the states gets much more money, and so yes, so that that can be a problem there. 
ECEE does probably punch above its weight. It's got a very good reputation. And so, and it's very respected. I mean, an or, like ADEM, the French Energy Agency, just adores it, gives it quite a bit of support and really helps build it up. And what will happen is sometimes that because we're seen as sort of a, a neutral player, often somebody will give us some support, financial support or whatever, to actually organize a meeting in Brussels so that, you know, we're, we can be doing that. We've been having, the other opposite years, we have a separate industry conference because industry people are just different, different breed of people. And so that's, quite a, that's been quite successful. Well, we're hoping to have one in Antwerp this November. And, I mean, it would be smaller. The, the, the summer study is normally five full days, and it's from morning to night. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a going concern. The industry one would be sometimes, this one will be one and a half days. Sometimes they're two and a half days. It's just a, a different thing. Mm-hmm. Now, getting to energy and demand, in the 1990s, I actually had a newsletter called Energy and Demand, and it came out quarterly. It was a paper you know, quarterly thing. And, and I would sell it, even the IEA would buy it, you know, and, 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 and subscribe to it. And it was, it was really designed to explain what's going on in Europe to people outside of Europe, like in Canada or United States or Japan, whatever. And then I found out that Europeans were wanting to know more about what was going on in Europe. So, uh, so I, I did that. And then I was actually, my wife was working for the World Bank. And we, so we were splitting our time between Washington and Paris. And I just stopped doing it. And so then in 2011, I started again, or 2012, I guess. And, and as an as a online version. So I have a blog. I have a newsletter that comes out on Sunday, as we mentioned. And it's... It's been quite successful. I mean, there's over one of the things that you go back to, there's probably 3,000 posts just on buildings. And if you go back and look at it, you can, you can, you can see the whole how things have evolved over time. But I remember in, a, in one meeting about five years ago, I was in, in, in Brussels with, the D, with DG Energy in the commission. And the head of energy efficiency at the time said, stood up and he says, as Rod Jansen said last Sunday, because I was criticizing them, okay? So, I mean, uh-huh. people were watching, okay? So Yes, it, yeah. So People are reading. People, people are reading. People are reading it, yes. And uh, yeah. so it's, it, it, it's, it, I find it fun because it keeps me f- uh, involved into what's going on. Every morning, I, I, I get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and scour the papers. And, and I don't try to find news. I try to find things to make people think. So, I mean, I'm not going to just put a news item that uh, the European Investment Bank is investing 50 year, million euros in a, in a school program. You know, I, I, sometimes that happens because it's useful. But I, I try to just make people think about some of this stuff. And yes, uh, yes. so it's, 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 it's quite fun to do that. And uh, no. That's what we try to do here on the podcast is just, and actually that's the benefit. I was just telling a group of students yesterday, if you want to learn something, start a podcast so you can go and interview people just to keep learning about some, a topic that you're really interested in. Well, my, my wife and, always 
laughs about me. I mean, I, maybe I should be doing pot because I mean, I can't talk enough with people. You know, I just love chatting yes. with people. You know, so yes, so I yes, think, I think oh. that's quite valuable. And I'm, I'm and, waiting and for that podcast. Is, I mean, you see it yourself. You've been in this game for quite a while. We are always learning. Yeah. Yes. We, we never. And the, the day I stop learning, I, I I'm going to quit. Yeah. But yeah. I also feel at the same time that uh, because I've I've had all of this experience. Uh, for my grandchildren's sake, for the, I mean, I, it's, you know, I've got to keep going, you know? Yeah. And because uh, I've got something to offer, you know? So. And, yes. And, and Rod, I'm so glad uh, you came on the podcast and offering your insight on, on the <laughs> topics. I, because, because look, I mean, you, you also see how the world changes and how now people take energy uh, efficiency even more seriously than before. And it is a solution, even more viable solution than, than people perceived from before. But it's this long-term transition. It's a long-term. And this is, I mean, we, it's not going to solve something in a panic. And this is the whole problem we've got. to. And the thing is, we shouldn't be doing anything knee-jerk in a crisis, you know, that we're going to regret later, whether it's on the supply side or on the demand side. I think we have to, you know, I think we you have to, you need that sense of calmness and and you know just that reflective. That's why for as academics, you've got an advantage that way, you know. And I, no, but it's it's important to hear academics because of that, because yes. the, because they do that, and yeah. and. I feel sorry for government, for for administrations, where the minister says, "I've got to have something tomorrow," you know, and 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 you know we've we've got to be seen to be doing something, and that's very difficult, and and yes. that can be quite scary, and so, and that's where the commission has to play a role to sort of say, "Calm down, Budapest. Calm down, Warsaw." You know, let's yeah. let's let's be let's reflect on this you know but it's, yeah. got, it's got to keep pushing and the iea has to keep pushing there's a, a and chatham house has to keep pushing we, there's got to be heard on a number of ways because we're, we're trying to reach different people and yes. the thing is that also we've got to bring the we've got to bring society along to understand it so we've got to that little that, that little homeowner in a in a village of 500 people whether it's in romania or france or or wherever They've got to understand it and feel comfortable with it. So we've all got a big job to do in this area. You know? And this is where yes. I feel that the energy efficiency community has let things down a little bit, but or just confused as to how to do it. You know, it's I mean, not, it's nothing, nothing simple. And here, yeah. as I said, we've got this working group on on trying to accelerate consumer demand to meet this renovation wave or other things. The three point five million, we have never succeeded. And we, but we've never had the challenge we have now, you know. Yes. So everything we've learned over the since the first and second oil crisis, we've got to put it together now. Yeah. Yeah, and not just reduce the thermostat one degree, but actually invest into our homes or other businesses to radically to change the energy. And we've got an incredible array of technologies now. But there's a there's a lot we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Rod, okay, we'll we'll keep it there. I love your last statement. There's a lot that we can do. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Okay, all the best. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. 
If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. <laughs>